0: This morning we will be reading as our sermon text the seventh commandment of God's law as it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 18 Deuteronomy 5:18 after which and to elaborate a bit and to provide a uh, an illustration of the importance and application of this commandment we will read in its entirety the seventh chapter of the book of Proverbs. Deuteronomy 518 followed by Proverbs chapter 7. This is the word of God it is the law of God who says you shall not commit adultery. And to drive this point home, God has given us the seventh chapter of the Proverbs. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live, and my teaching is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, You are my sister. And call understanding your intimate friend, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. For at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense passing through the street near her corner and he takes the way to her house in the twilight in the evening in the middle of the night and in the darkness and behold a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him and with a brazen face she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings Today I have paid my vows. Therefore, I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know the waywardness of the human heart as children of Adam, as we all are. We pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would guide us in the way of truth, and we thank you so much for the instruction of your word, by which you train us to be more like Christ. In his precious name we pray, with thanksgiving. Amen. We live immersed in this restless culture that's determined to throw off every last moral restraint and loudly celebrate every perceived victory in its rebellion against the Lord and against his Christ. Literally, there are in American cities today, and most of you know this already, There are in American cities public parades to celebrate the casting off of God's law. Think for a moment of the conditions, even of God's creation ordinances, let alone the Ten Commandments, but even the condition of His creation ordinances in American culture today. The Sabbath. For so many, the Sabbath is only a distant memory, if the average American ever thinks of it at all. Work? We hear work advertised not as an honorable calling from God, but as something to get past the need for. Why work if you don't have to? Why not trust the lottery instead? Or if not the lottery, how about the more modest, but steadier, ongoing help of the state? Why work if the state will take care of you? And marriage. Well, we see in the news every day and in our personal experiences from people that we know. We know what marriage has come to when the wicked govern. God has given his law to the church, certainly for his own glory, but also for our good. His law shines light upon our path. It illuminates the way ahead of us so that we can now live this good life safely and securely in the good land that is now stretched out before us. Literally, in the the first instance, just across the Jordan River, there it is. freed from petty tyrants like Pharaoh, we can finally live as a people theocentrically, that is, with the will of God, not the will of men, at the center of human society. By the light of this law, we begin to understand that there couldn't even be a good life at all without the living and true God first to give it, and then to guide it and ultimately to be glorified in it. And the first table of the law certainly makes this point emphatically clear I am Jehovah your God who brought you out to the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That is the clarion call a God-centered life. I can remember many years ago as a supervisory army chaplain hearing a chaplain candidate, a young lieutenant aiming to become an army chaplain he was preaching a message about getting God to do what you want him to do for you. And friends, that is not the way you worship and serve God. That is the way you train a cocker spaniel. Listen, friends, this God whom we worship is the maker of heaven and earth. He ruleth ever by his might, his eyes the nations try. Let not the proud rebellious ones exalt themselves on high. O, all ye people, bless our God, aloud proclaim his praise, who holdeth fast our soul in life. Our feet from sliding stays. He is not my domestic servant. He is not my personal genie. He is not my cocker spaniel. By the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, this good life that I'm already experiencing right here, Now in this good land, this good life isn't about me. I live this life for him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. That is the substance of the whole first table of the law. That we love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength because he's the source of it all, and he's the center of it all. But then God's law makes the point in its second half that this good life that we live is not a life that's lived in isolation. The inheritance promised to Abraham and his seed wasn't an individual cubicle, each with its separate phone line to heaven. That's not the Christian life. The inheritance of Canaan was a good, broad, fertile land given to whole families who were organized in larger tribes and destined to serve a priestly function among all the nations of the world. Which just means that ours is a lifetime to be spent in personal engagement With others. We're not monks. We're with others. This good life in the good land requires therefore that we learn how to get along with one another for the glory of God. This horizontal social learning begins in a well-run home under the care of honorable parents who are honored by their children. It protects and promotes life in all of its beautiful expressions. It also protects and promotes fidelity to all of the solemn covenants that we make with one another. Now, let me take one more step backward to get a running leap into this seventh commandment. I borrow the thought from Dr. Rush Dooney, who met the lawlessness and immorality of the 20th century with the specific requirements of God's law. What, after all, is sin, but any want of conformity unto or transgression of God's law? Well, Dr. Rushtuni makes the important point that just as Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and men, his law mediates horizontally between man and man, between man and woman. His law takes sinners by the hand, as it were, and shows us what it is to treat one another as people, not as impersonal things to manipulate, not as tools to leverage or resources to milk or problems to solve. People aren't there for our pleasure. People are people. People are personal. And God's law shows us how we ought to treat one another as humans, humanely. It teaches us, it reproves us, it corrects us, and it trains us in righteousness. Now, do you suppose that lost and perishing sinners, apart from the light of God's law, do you suppose that they are ever going to figure out on their own how to make marriage work for the good of everyone concerned? We won't. We won't. Apart from the amazing grace of heavenly instruction, we will turn the immense blessing of marriage into a desert. We'll turn it into a wasteland. Sometimes a marriage can be the absolute loneliest place in the world to be. Because restless sinners, left unchecked, left on our own, we are going to try every which way that we can to make it fail. Sinners go kicking and screaming down the narrow biblical way of marital fidelity. They don't like it, they come up with every invention they can to try to improve on marriage. And yet from the day that it came from the heart of God in the beginning, it's never been improved. It's never been improved. Sinners only pollute it. Like the perfect snowflake falling out of the winter sky, the moment a lost sinner breathes on marriage as God designed it, it's gone. It's ruined. Sinners ruin it. The moment a sinner touches marriage, it becomes something not to be enjoyed, but endured. Unless Christ Jesus teaches us otherwise in his law, sinners bring disorder to everything that God first ordered for his own glory and our good. So, what does the seventh commandment say? about putting these horizontal relationships back in order, what it says is, you shall not commit adultery. Now, as we saw last week, the bare negatives in God's law always imply a wonderfully full and satisfying positive. The prohibition sets forth a duty And I haven't yet found a better explanation of both the duties required and the sins forbidden in this commandment than the answers found in our Westminster larger catechism. Over three and a half centuries have passed since the Westminster Assembly drafted these documents, and no one's ever spelled it out more pastorally, practically, and completely. What are the duties required in the seventh commandment? That's the question the larger catechism asks. What are the duties required in the seventh commandment? The answer? Listen carefully. The duties required in the seventh commandment are chastity, in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior, and the preservation of it in ourselves and others, watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses, temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty in apparel, marriage by those that have not the gift of continency, conjugal love and cohabitation diligent labor in all our callings, shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting temptations thereunto. That's some pretty helpful instruction, isn't it? Because it's not shy about the matter and it's not pie in the sky and it's not all about days gone by. The fullness of the answer meets us where we live. It gets to the nuts and bolts machinery of this sin. It addresses all these sensory avenues by which the sin of adultery typically finds an entrance into the soul. Neither is the catechism's treatment of the sins forbidden any less hard hitting than the duties required. Because negatives actually mean something. Prohibitions carry a weight all their own. You see, biblical purity, biblical purity doesn't play around the edges of sin. Sin is a whirlpool. pool. Sin draws the sinner's attention inward toward the center of it. Unless God intervenes to save, unless by the might and power of the Holy Spirit, he overrules the weak sinner to energize him and turn him on his heel and march him resolutely away, unless he does that, this sin draws them in who stick around to watch it from the fringes. because none of us is as morally strong as we flatter ourselves to be. From being curious spectators at the edge of the action, we actually become part of the action until at the very center of the action we are drawn down and under and are gone, along with our Christian testimony. Isn't that the way sin works? Isn't that the point Of the proverb. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. She's working on him. She's wearing him down. But does that make him the innocent victim? The fact is, the fact is, She can't get anywhere with him unless he stays there to be worked on. Unless he stays there to be worn down. He's at the edge of this whirlpool, thinking perhaps that he's strong enough to resist. Thinking that he's above all this. Thinking that he's going to go home that evening, the same man he was when he left home. But what does the proverb go on to say? Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one infetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know it will cost him his life. What was the apple of God's eye, King David, what was he doing before he suddenly, unexpectedly, became an adulterer and and ultimately the murderer of Bathsheba's husband? What was he doing? He was a spectator. He was an onlooker. The scripture says, now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. We read that, and of course we know the rest of the story, but we read that and we just want to shout out to the page before us, for God's sake, David... Turn around, shut your eyes. For your kingdom's sake, for your family's sake. But of course, he didn't close his eyes. We want to say, turn around, go inside, forget about it. But he didn't turn. He didn't go inside, he certainly didn't forget He didn't resolve, as he might well have resolved, to just pack his bags and join his army in the field where he should have been. If only he had. No, the inspired writer tells us how it all began to unravel. First, David himself, and then his family, and finally his kingdom. It began to unravel. How did it all start? <clears throat> Second Samuel verse, uh, chapter 11, verse three says, <clears throat> "So David sent and inquired about the woman. Adultery begins, you see, with the sinful inclination, native to the fallen human nature, the fallen human heart, mine and yours. That's the inclination that you and I have to learn to mortify with God's help. That inclination we need to learn to put to death. Because if we don't, then the seeds of adultery are sown with the presentation of this unexpected opportunity. And then they germinate with that look that lingers a little too long. They grow in habits that hook and hold us, ask King David how it starts and how it takes hold. So the Catechism goes on to ask, what are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? The answer, Again, they're worth careful listening and careful reading when you have the opportunity. The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications, or listening thereunto, wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, or keeping of stews, which was a 17th century term for brothels, actual or the internet variety, and resorting to them, entangling vows of single life, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, all other provocations to or acts of uncleanness either in ourselves or others. It's a long list of sins forbidden by this commandment and three and a half centuries of human development have never shortened that list or curtailed the opportunities we have in our own generation to sin. Now it might be worth recalling every so often just where Israel was, geographically and historically, as Moses was preaching this law to them. They're a nation of probably two million or more spread across the plains of Moab east of the Jordan River. They're ready to enter the land of Canaan from east to west. So we know a little bit about Israel and how they got there. Let's take a moment to consider the character of those nations across the river. The nations that oppose them. Because to know them is to know why Moses has to drive this law home to the young nation that's about to encounter them. There are At least seven nations there across the Jordan River in Canaan to the west, there are seven nations, not all that unlike our own nation. Nations steeped in the idolatry of Moloch, which is to say statism, the religion of political power. Nations steeped in the idolatry of Baal and Ishtar, his female consort, representing together both sexuality and prosperity. Men and women worshiped these idols in the manner befitting the particular grotesqueness of that idol's character. To the iron state was offered the firstborn child on the red-hot, open arms of the idol Moloch. I leave the worship practices of Baal and Ishtar buried discreetly in that long list of the catechism's prohibitions. But Israel certainly knew about them. After all, just over yonder lay Baal Peor, where this very generation of Israelites had fallen into the idolatry and sexual license of Moab. According to God's law, the earth simply has no place for these people. No place. There is no place on earth for people who lead God's little ones into sin so he imposes that holy destruction that becomes such a stumbling block to modern critics of the ban the harem or the ban the critics pose the question how can a good and just God put whole cities under the ban of total annihilation but the critics question contains its own answer. It's because God is good and because he's just. The fact is history offered these nations over 400 years to turn away from their sin, to repent, to reform, had that been their resolution. We find in the pages of Scripture not the slightest indication that it ever was. But rather that the cup of iniquity, their cup of iniquity, had only filled fuller generation after generation until at last it runs over. Under Joshua's leadership, Israel's mission is to leave those nations neither root nor branch They're simply too deadly a threat to holy living. Against the strong current of Canaanite culture, far too much of which remained and was left intact, against that influence, and because of that influence largely, Israel fell. In fact, again and again, she fell. She kept on falling. The moral weight of the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, was simply beyond her national strength and natural strength to resist. Her character as a nation was no match for the abundant opportunities to sin and the strong pull of this particular sin. Beginning at Baal Peor, even before she crossed the river, Israel started out the conquest very, very badly. Then she went from bad to worse under the rule of the judges. Even the best days of the Davidic monarchy were lived under the cloud of royal adultery, polygamy, Incest, intrigue, and the general deterioration of marriage and the family. The Babylonian exile only expanded the opportunities for compromise with the lost world and its standards. Beloved, I know personally these things are very difficult and heavy to preach, and I know that they are heavy To hear. I hope you'll feel the weight of this commandment. But I also hope you don't become discouraged. By all that I've been saying. Let's remember that through these dark clouds of biblical history. A history that paints our human character exactly as it is. Here and there shines a God-given ray. Of marital faithfulness and hope. Here and there, you'll find an Isaac sporting with his wife Rebecca and no other. Here and there, you'll find a Boaz treating Ruth with discretion and honor. Here and there in the Proverbs, you'll discover sound guidance on just this issue. Here and there, you'll find encouraging glimpses of how this holy ordinance of marriage was meant to be. But don't stop there in the Old Testament either, because when the Old Testament closes and the new one opens it opens with a genealogy that testifies not to the moral perfections of a family line that got everything right, but testifying to the superintending faithfulness of the God of all grace. God who, even from the likes of a wavering Abraham, an incestuous Judah and Tamar, a harlot Rahab, an adulterer, David, and Solomon, born by her who had been the wife of Uriah. It's all there in the opening words of Matthew's Gospel. These are the frail men and women that God chose to build his kingdom. We discovered, in other words, the amazing truth that God chose to use even the moral failures of his people to bring into being Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Isn't that marvelous? We falter and fail, and still our failures cannot thwart the gracious purpose of the incarnate God to redeem the lost and restore the fallen. Grace abounds to the chief of sinners. Hallelujah. What a savior is ours. But I'd lose the opportunity if I don't close with a few practical notes on how to guard the sweet exclusiveness of your own marriage. Judah, Tamar, and even King David may have been providential links in the long history of redemption, but they don't offer much to us in the way of positive instruction. So how, by the grace of God, do we keep this commandment? How do we guard that precious home, your home, from which springs not only so much of your own happiness, but also the church's next generation. How do we guard it? First of all, by the mercies of Christ, I implore you, beloved, to start early. I'm talking to you children, mostly here. But start early. Choose your mate only with the greatest of care and deliberation. Marriage, after all, is two people pulling together, sharing a common yoke in life. It's a shared yoke. It doesn't chafe against your neck now because you're not wearing it now, children and young people. It doesn't chafe now. You're not wearing it. But once you take it on, on the day of your wedding, this yoke doesn't come off without the greatest difficulty and the worst heartache that you can imagine and tears that seem sometimes like they are never going to end. Start early. You don't want that for yourself. So take a hard look at this common yoke of marriage now. While you can still look at that yoke from every angle, will the two of you both be pulling in the same direction? At the beginning? Five years from now? 25 years from now? 45 years from now, will you be pulling in the same direction? Will you spiritually be pulling in the same direction? How about socially? Sexually? Financially? Are your goals in life the same? Are your interests similar? Are your appetites similar? Similar? And then do these calculations that you're doing today, do these calculations allow room for both of you to change and develop and grow over the span of a lifetime? Because I hate to break it to you, but young men aren't always going to be as charming and clever as they are today. And you young ladies aren't always going to be so irresistible as you are today. And days will come when neither one of you is going to particularly like the company of the other. Be ready for it. Make allowances for it. So what about you personally in your own heart of hearts? Are you prepared to do whatever it takes to deepen your love over the years? To deepen your love unilaterally, if you have to, without ever once broadening that love out or looking for another shoulder to cry on, someday very soon, You'll all be, and each of you will be, old and gray. And at the very best, it's going to be just you and your lawfully wedded sweetie pie. Two people, not three or more. Two people, two hearts. One of those hearts is yours to commend. And the other is under your direct daily influence to make this covenant love last a lifetime. So first, start early giving this matter the serious thought that it deserves. Second, let's be diligent to stifle and starve the devil of every opportunity to get at our marriages and families. The Apostle Paul advises, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. It's helpful to reflect on what that means and what it implies. Don't professing Christians sometimes unwittingly invite the devil into our homes. Don't let him in. It may be through the door of the internet or the TV. It may be through the window of unresolved anger. It may be down the chimney of neglected marital duty. King David, is your rooftop patio the place you need to be right now? Wouldn't you be doing far, far better down at Rabbah, shoulder to shoulder with General Joab and the troops? Not malingering here at home in the comforts of the palace. You want the city of Rabbah? Go take Rabbah. You want trouble? And stay here at home where all the lonely women are with their husbands out in the field. Beloved, shut tight every door of opportunity to sin. Seductions work over time. And not all of them are on the internet and TV. Some factors undermining marriage seem to be so innocent. And in a way, they are innocent, per se. There's nothing wrong with them, per se. But over time, they can wear a man or a woman down, These aren't things that trigger lust, necessarily. They may simply trigger a gradual sense of neglect. They may be habits that just bring on boredom. They may be divided interests. Talk together, you and your wife, you and your husband, What are your respective careers, for instance? What are your respective careers doing to your marriage? What's the impact of all this travel you're having to do? All this time away from one another, what sorts of things are you feeding your soul? I'm certainly not suggesting an inquisition. Struggling couples don't need inquisitions. But what I'm suggesting is an occasional meeting of hearts and minds to keep yourselves on the same road toward an ever-deepening love. Finally, let us as husbands and wives learn to spend ourselves on one another within the home. I could have said, let's learn to invest ourselves in one another. But investment implies a personal return on the investment. And this isn't about what you can get back. It's about loving one another lavishly within the bonds of merit. A strange discovery of husbands and wives who try it is that if you hold nothing back, if you hold nothing back, there always seems to be more to give. It's the oil that never runs out. This covenant of marriage spent lavishly on one another, enjoyed deeply with one another, is the costly nard that together we pour out on the feet of Jesus and the whole house is filled with its fragrance. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we contemplate our marriages present and those future to many of us here, we marvel At your wisdom and kindness and goodness in designing this institution that you might be glorified that we might be benefited and that the loving relationship between Christ and his church would be displayed before our eyes and our children's eyes we ask O Lord that you would keep us in your grace that you would watch over us and protect our homes for the sake of Jesus Christ our Savior and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.